This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. In August 2016, Luke Rosen's two-year-old daughter, Susanna, was diagnosed with a rare neurodegenerative condition known as KIF-1A, Associated Neurological Disorder. At the time, she was one of about 15 people known to have the condition. Ahead of the upcoming Rare Patient Advocacy Summit hosted Saturday, May 19th by Global Genes in partnership with the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine, we spoke to Rosen about his journey as a patient advocate, how he has sought to build an organization to advance research into his daughter's condition, and his work now as a patient advocate within a biotech company. Luke, thanks for joining us. Danny, thanks for having me on. Pleasure. We're going to talk about your life as a parent-patient advocate, your newer role as a patient advocate within a biotech company, and the upcoming Rare Patient Advocacy Summit at the University of Pennsylvania that's hosted by Global Genes and the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center at the Perlman School of Medicine. Perhaps we can begin with your daughter, Susanna. How did you come to learn she had a rare disease? Sure. So, uh, Susanna was was uh, was born in uh, in May. Uh, she'll be four next month, I think. And uh, pretty much from you know from from birth, she wasn't meeting milestones, and, and we uh, you know we were, we were a little stumped as to what was going on. We weren't too concerned at first. Um, you know, being our, our our second child, you kind of uh, have a little bit more patience when things pop up and don't panic as much. But finally, we did realize that you know. Um, she was just a little bit behind, and our neurologist, uh, after uh, after about a year and a half, we uh, were uh, recommended that we uh, have whole exome sequencing. And we had no idea what that was, of course, and and uh, we were enrolled in an academic study at first. So the the timeline was um, really making us anxious because it was taking a while to get those results back, and finally we did, and and. Uh, and indeed, it came back that Suze has a, uh, a mutation or a CAF1A gene. We had no idea what that was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we took to the Internet and to researching. And, and uh, finally, we were connected with the, the right doctor who, um, who explained the implications very clearly to us. And, and that's when our lives changed. Now, how does a doctor explain the implications for disease where, if, if I remember correctly, Susanna was maybe the 15th patient known to have this mutation? Yeah, that's right. So we, we were we were lucky in that uh, we, we're here in New York City and, 
and uh, Susanna's care takes place at, at Columbia University, and that's where uh, Wendy Chung is. And so Wendy was one of the um, only clinicians who, uh, you know, who had any uh, kind of clinical experience with, with uh, these complex mutations, and, and she was able to um, sit down with us. And, yeah, we knew of about 15 in literature at the time, and, and she, uh, she sat Sally and I down and, and explained to us that you know this this rare neurological condition is uh, is really unknown, and that we we think that there's a, a progressive course to it that uh, we might expect. And she talked a little bit about uh, things that we are indeed going through right now, and and, and since I've met uh, met other other families who are going through the same thing, so it was um it was a pretty pretty remarkable moment, that's for sure. Yeah. And at that point, what kind of advice does does a doctor give a patient? You know, she advice that we got both um, from Dr. Chung and then uh, a couple of months later when we were at NIH was really to uh, to celebrate the the, the small victories and, and look for the uh, the small solution and the overarching um, the overarching uh, what we know about this unknown, what we know about this unknown rare disease, uh, within those, within, within that big arc, there's, there's little things that we can actually address that other people have gone through and that there's, uh, there is, you know, clinical solutions to, like seizures, movement disorder, um, and these are, these are things that we're dealing with now and, and optic nerve atrophy and some other things and those are, those are, you know, situations that you can, you can, uh, approach that where therapeutic options do exist. So those are things we focused on. But the main thing was, you know, we we knew that uh, we could, you know, spend as much time as we could with Susanna and and uh, you know, try to uh, provide the most meaningful life that we could, we could or we could go home and we could do something about it and uh, activate and try to find other folks, try to find other families uh, going through the same thing. So that's what we set out to do. And, and uh that's, that's how the foundation started. <laughs> One of the issues for getting a diagnosis where there are so few known patients is there tends not to be established patient organizations where you would normally go to for information, for support, for connecting with other patients. What did you do? That's it. We were another great thing and a fantastic resource at Columbia is that when we uh, when we got the diagnosis, it wasn't just a uh, no. A single doctor, a, a pediatrician, or a geneticist. We we were, you know, uh, greeted by a social worker. Uh, there was a, a genetic counselor, of course, and the medical team there to uh, explain things to us. And our social worker immediately pointed us in, in, in two directions. Um, we already we already knew about Nord uh, just from uh, from the news, and and uh, we didn't know about Global Genes or the Mighty. And those are those are two resources that. Uh, the social worker pointed us to right away, and so I called um, I called Nicole and the folks at Global Genes, and uh, kind of said, you know, um, I'm not quite sure what to do. Uh, <laughs> can you help me? And that's that's how we uh, formed the unified front and, and kind of activated. So it was Global Genes, yeah. And you activated by forming uh, KIF1A.org. Yeah, and that was you know we we actually actually kind of formed it accidentally in that uh, one of the things that I, I, I now see is like such a, a problem in this um, in this space is the uh, accessibility of literature so we um, 
we couldn't, it was hard to find literature about Kessel A. Um, of course, there wasn't much known about you know, uh, clinical findings, but even just research. And uh, so I did track down all the literature, and, and I was getting calls from a few people. We found a Facebook group saying uh, that they, they hadn't read the papers. And, and one person said, you know, the reason I haven't read the, the paper is because you have to pay 35 bucks on PubMed to read it. But my God, here's, here's, here's somebody who, I, you know, is going through the same thing we are, and, and, and I'm lucky enough to be learning about the disease, but they aren't. So, um, you know, so we, <laughs> we broke the law, and, um, you know, we, we, the first, uh, first funds that we spent were, uh, were in PubMed and, and, and uh, downloading all the uh, literature that we could, and I, I put them up on a website, and that's how the, the website formed. And, and from there, people kind of flocked to it, and, and uh, people started calling, and I realized that you know, this is how we could do it. I, I know you've spoken in the past about both the, the feeling of urgency and the importance of collaboration. You're going to be speaking about collaboration in part at, at the UPenn event. In the rare disease space, those are two very interrelated notions. Why is collaboration so important for someone with a rare disease like Susanna's? So collaboration is important because um, because the idea of, of different people coming to coming to create a solution that's uh, far greater and far more progressive than either one individual could uh, could come up with is is something we rely on, right? Because um, the collaboration and urgency kind of feed right into each other. So the only way we're going to be efficient about our, our, our workflow and efficient about uh, about the research is, is to be working uh, openly and clearly with, with other people because uh, across the entire landscape, everybody has different skill sets. And to be able to find those people and, and bring them together is, uh, is the most efficient strategy. And I think that's especially true with rare genetic diseases because once once we realize to, to, to think about these diseases as, you know, pathways instead of genes, we start, um, you know, really understanding that one way to uh, make progress is, is to identify with other diseases, right? Other, other diseases that are similar, um, especially in the, in the neurological space. And, uh, we can, we can find similarities, not just in phenotypes, but in, in, uh, the kind of services that our, our, our kids need at school. And uh, the, the unmet needs in these communities are, are very similar. So once we start thinking about uh, these, these pathways that other diseases uh, overlap, we can, we can address those in more than just a biological way. It can extend to a, a social and uh, supportive community. You'll be speaking about the role patients play in the research and drug development process as well at the event. This is the entire continuum from discovery through post-market approval activities you know this work not only as a parent-patient advocate, but now serving as a patient advocate within a biotech. You seem to have done a lot in a relatively short time at your organization. How did you prioritize what you needed to do? Uh, well, within the organization, how we prioritized it was really just the numbers. That the uh, you know we. We couldn't, we knew that the magic number was about 100, right? So if we only could identify about 15, 15 kids, uh, in the world. And, you know, we knew that we needed to get 100, uh, it was, was the number that someone told us. And, uh, if we got 100 kids, then, you know, the, the disease would be a little bit easier to, to understand. So that was the immediate goal. And so we kind of put that in fifth gear and we, we went out and we, 
advocated for uh, whole exome sequencing and uh, access to genetic testing for people who couldn't, and uh, that was really the fire the, uh, that that uh, that kind of uh, burned <laughs> immediately to find that hundred that number of 100. So what we did is we contacted uh, all the testing facilities around the country and, and told them about our organization. And, and now on some lab reports, our, our uh, organization is listed as a resource so people just start start reaching out. Um, that's what uh, that's what really fueled the fire. And then we were lucky because we had uh, active people. The people that did contact us are, are very motivated and, and, and uh very supportive. So that that was that was the the urgency came from the people that we uh, people with this disease. It's a remarkable community. And are natural histories and patient registries kind of an important first step for a lot of these folks? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, Danny, because it's it's vital. And we uh, you know we were also and I keep saying it and it's because it's so true how lucky we are to uh, to have our research team at Columbia because one of one of the things that we have is uh, Dr. Chung and, and and her team. They've they uh, they started the natural history and, and and the clinical registry. And so while we were developing our community, uh, we were immediately putting people in touch with uh, with our team there. So uh, as soon as somebody reached out to us, we uh, you know welcome them in the community. But the first thing we do is is uh, put them in touch with the research team, and they have extensive conversations to. Uh, to help create that clinical registry and natural history at the same time. There's no reason that the two should be separated in, in a process. And I think that a lot of times, uh, I've, what I've, what I understand and, and, and some of the, uh, processes that I've seen, sometimes foundations, uh, make the mistake of separating the two, a registry and a natural history. And I think that if the cohort is small enough, which a lot of rare diseases are, um, they're, Two tasks that can be accomplished at the same time in an efficient way. So that's something that helped us um, helped us uh, streamline our, our process. You were fortunate to have a, a researcher that was ready, willing, and able to to engage. How can patient advocates engage researchers to do work on their diseases? Is funding the answer? And and if so, on what scale do they have to think about funding to get a, a researcher engaged? Yeah, so funding is, you know, at the heart of things, unfortunately, funding is, is, uh, the vital part of everything. But, um, I think the trick is for advocates to, uh, communicate and, and, you know, break down those, down those barriers. And one of the jobs I've found as an advocate is, is to make sure that the people researching and the people, uh, involved in the entire process become advocates, right? So you're not just relying on other patients and other patients' families, but, you know, by really communicating and really, uh, you know, really telling the story of the patient journey and, um, and, and urgently and realistically and clearly uh, in the unmet needs of this community, which is pretty, they're pretty severe. Um, you know, if you have an empathetic team or an empathetic researcher, automatically they then become advocates. And so, um, you know, cross-functionally people are researchers, uh, clinicians, uh, patients, but at the end of the day, if all of those entities can be advocates for families and for the patients, then the process is going to be faster. So we, we were very lucky, you're right, that um, 
we came into a situation where, uh, you know, Wendy Chung and her team were, were just amazingly kind, empathetic and, and, and advocates already. So we, uh, we didn't have to, we didn't have to convince anyone really. People situated like you, you feel this urgency. Uh, on one hand, you're, you're working with other patients and patient groups. You're working with, if you're lucky, researchers, academic researchers, folks in, in the medical community, and, and hopefully with biopharmaceutical companies. Uh, these folks all have different interests. They have different timetables. They have different cultural settings. How do you transfer that urgency you feel, and, and how do you get people to, to share information and avoid duplication that can waste resources and, and, and waste time? It, by making, you know, first, first and foremost, by making everything publicly accessible, by, by making our, our, our registry, make sure everybody knows that we have the ability to, or they have the ability uh, to recontact folks in our community, and then, you know, and then also to uh, to make sure that uh, you know there there were times where I was going around to you know undergrad campuses handing out you know our, our medical <laughs> files saying you know hey anybody take a crack at it can, can, can does anybody have any ideas you know and so by um, by making sure that the information is out there and and real time updates on the research process and you know you're creating that content and putting it out there on the web. And, picking up the phone and letting everybody know exactly what's going on with the disease state, then, you know, people are, are motivated. And, and, you know, another thing that uh, Dr. Chung and the team of Columbia said, you know, they said, we'll, we'll do this for these families. You know, we, we, we will commit to KF1A and, and we'll do it. And, and the, the, the thing we will ask for is uh, a, a picture of all the patients to, um, to have in our lab. So, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's very clear to us why people, uh, working on KF1A or going to work in the morning and why they're staying at the office late. And it's, it's for the kids. So if you find people like that and, and share information and, and make everything completely accessible, then, you know, then, then we're going to be making progress and cut, cutting down on, uh, you know, parallel work. But the other thing is very much, and I've, I've noticed this now in, in, uh, in biotech is that the people who are making the most progress and working efficiently and not duplicating work are the people who are celebrating, um, you know, other curative ventures, right? And so if the goal at the end of the day is to, you know, figure out ways to impact the lives of people, you know, with these rare conditions like Susanna and our family, then, um, then if, if we're celebrating and encouraging other people to do it, you know, other colleagues, other other companies to to continue with that. We're making progress, and by celebrating other people's uh, research and work and uh, community uh, involvement, you know that's cutting down on on uh, on parallel work because everybody knows about it in a positive way. And, and what role can groups like yours play in terms of directing other patients to researchers and helping get donations of biological materials or? Other things that can be useful in, in helping crack a, a disease. Yeah, and I think that the, the, the answer is, is similar. Is, is that uh, it's by uh, you know shouting from the mountaintop in a in a clear and informed way. So if we're publicly telling stories and, and uh, utilizing 
platforms like this podcast, like uh, the you know the innovative work that you know Mike Porath and the folks at the Mighty are doing. I mean, that's you know facilitating the patient voice and educating uh, the people who are, uh, are are telling that story. Then that's how we're going to learn from each other. I mean, um, you know, we did our. I will say that our foundation kind of, uh, you know threw out any playbook that existed about about starting a, a rare disease foundation. Not that there really was one, but but we knew we needed to find the team and the people who were uh, you know were creative, were taking risks, and you know weren't weren't afraid to fail. And, and uh, we we did find that team because that's the only way to do this is to you know do things that nobody else is doing. And that's that's advice that you know folks like uh, you know who's just a guest on your podcast. Um, uh, Matt might he's been uh, a pretty incredible resource for us, and that's the first bit of advice Matt gave me was find the people who are doing something that no one else is doing and and uh, connect with them. You're now working for a clinical stage biotech. At what point does the company bring patients into the process? Do you talk to patients when a program is in preclinical development and what role can they play in helping determine whether to advance a program and, and talk about things like clinical endpoints? Yeah, so I, I think that uh, increasingly, you know, we hear early patient involvement. And, you know, I, I think it's even before preclinical development, and that's, you know, uh, as soon as the disease comes up as a as a possible indication in, in study, um, even just in conversation, I think that's that's when. Uh, industry has an obligation to get the patients involved, right? So, um, because you can't really commit to something until you understand what, you know, what really matters to the patients, uh, in that community and how far they're willing to go. So if you can get an idea of, uh, people who are living with a disease and what a meaningful change would be, um, from a therapeutic outcome, then, then if you do that early, that's going to shave months and you know, dollars off of the process. How has your view of, of patient advocacy evolved as you do this from within a biotech company? Are there things you find yourself explaining to patients about the drug development process that you understand differently today? Yeah, there, there, there certainly is. Uh, you know, um, the timeline is, is, is uh, there's a reality about that, that timeline to expect uh, and to, uh, you know, to bring a drug to market, to bring a therapy to market, uh, it, it does take a long time, and that's a hard thing to articulate, especially if it's if it's a pill that you've had to swallow in the past. You know, understanding that you know this is this is a long process. It's going to take time, and while we're trying to shorten it, and while we're trying to um, you know find discover these efficiencies within the process, it's still a long time, and, and communicating that uh, to other patients and other advocates from um, you know the insight insight that I now have working with a company, working with a biotech is is sometimes tricky. But I think that the the uh, again the the answer lies in, in honesty and, and transparency and and not you know uh, forgetting about managing expectations because you know you hear that a lot in the industry is you know uh, people say before we contact the patients we need to come up with a, a strategy to manage expectations should um, you know should the, the 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 drug fail or we not you know not go to market and and I think that that's the first thing that needs to go. So the idea of managing expectations um, inherently means slowing down uh, the integration of the patient's voice into the process. If that makes sense. So 
um, you know, rare disease patients uh, don't have time to, uh, you know, be uh, concerned with people managing their expectations. Uh, you know, as a rare disease patient, I just want somebody to come and tell me exactly what's going on because if it's not going to be beneficial for my family, for my foundation, and for the rare disease community, then I'm going to shake their hand and move on. I'm not going to I'm not going to spend uh, time talking about my expectations because uh, we don't have that time. So it's, again, it's efficiencies and honesty. Yeah. How about your perspective on the role that patients can play in the drug development processes? Has that changed at all? And, and what can patients do to get the therapies they need faster? Be involved in the process. I mean, that's, you know, I, I'm lucky at Ovid. We have, you know, a, a team of really, you know, remarkable people. And, you know, I, I set out, I, I didn't set out to work in any biotech. In fact, I, I'm sure that, you know, I, I would not be um, happy or, or be able to contribute much if I were working in, you know, big pharma. But I work in a, a small team that does, you know, risks and does engage the patients early. And, you know, you could eliminate the word engagement entirely and, and replace it with inclusion or involvement because, you know, by having these, you know, patient groups like ours, involved early, you know, you don't have to spend time and money developing an app to try to figure out and understand how far a patient is willing to travel to be in clinical trial. You can just have patients come into the office and say, listen, how far is your community, you know, willing to travel to be uh, included in this study? And that, you know, those those weeks that get saved add up. So that's how you shorten the progress, the, the, the process of R&D is to involve patients early and and just sit down and ask the questions that need to be asked in order to, um, you know, to, to create these studies and and, uh, and protocols. You can meet Luke at the Global Genes and the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center's Rare Patient Advocacy Symposium, May 19th in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Luke Rosen, founder of KIF1A.org and Associate Director of Patient Engagement of Ovid Therapeutics. Luke, thanks so much for your time today. Danny, thanks for having me. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.